I could take out of my life everything except my experiences at St. Andrew, and I still have a rich, full life. But the last tee shot I hit was more like it, that one in the playoff. Against Biden and Ray. That's right. The best thing to win the Masters, you, you will be here forever, as long as, as you are still alive, so that's the best thing. I'm very happy. Welcome to episode 48 of the Talking Golf History Podcast. As the 2020 U.S. Open is about to begin at the historic Wingfoot Golf Club, we thought that we might take a look at the history of golf clubhouse architecture in America and focus in on the work of Clifford Wendehack, as well as some of the great golf clubhouse architects of their day. Many of you may know our guest Jim Sitar best from his social media presence on Instagram as the person behind the popular account Golf Clubhouses. In Golf Clubhouses, Jim takes you inside both the historic and modern clubhouses, many of which are exclusive. Jim lives in Chicago, where he is a writer, editor, and college professor. Without further ado, let's join in on our interview with Jim Sitar. Jim, welcome to episode 47 of the Talking Golf History Podcast. Connor, it's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, thanks for coming on. This is going to be a fun one. As you know, we've dedicated this season to the history of our greatest golf course architects. But you've dedicated much of your study to the history of golf clubhouse architects. How did you get interested in golf clubhouse architecture? Well, I've, I've always been really interested in, in golf and golf courses and golf course architecture has been something I've learned a lot about in the last, you know, five to seven years. Um, for me, I've also just been a kind of amateur architecture buff, um, building architecture. That is, uh, I have no, formal background in it whatsoever. I'll just get that out right right at the beginning. Um, but just someone who really appreciates and, and wants to learn more about design and, and different structures. And, and the clubhouse um, is really where those two loves, those two passions come together. Really? So it was, you love golf, you love of architecture, and you thought you'd blend the two? Is that fair to say? Yeah, absolutely. You know, it was, it was a way to kind of learn something new about two two loves of mine, you know, by combining them. Um, and, you know, it's also a good way to contribute something to, you know, the social media kind of golf area of social media where, um, look, I'm not an expert in golf course architecture. Um, I don't take the best photos either. Um, you know, I'm not a model. So, you know, <laughs> I, I contribute. That's a lot of I'm social gonna... media just eliminated. <laughs> <laughs> and I love all that, but I don't have a place there. So, you know, I thought, you know, how can I make a, a meaningful contribution to people who, you know, are passionate about the game um, as I am and, and, and kind of add something new. Jim, where can people find what you post? Where's the best way to find your posts on uh, golf clubhouses? Yeah, um, it's really simple. Um, on Instagram. Uh, it's at golf clubhouses. Um, and that's it. Uh, I don't really do Twitter. Um, and so I, yeah, I'm posting photos and really, 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 really long captions. I'm not sure how many people actually get 
through reading my captions, but um, I'm always trying to infuse a little bit of history and a little bit of design knowledge um, to the posts that I make. I asked that same question when I put photos out there on Instagram. <laughs> it's such a visual medium, right? So, you know, I, I get clubhouses. They see, you know, Wingfoot's Clubhouse and it's iconic and it grabs your eye and you know what it is. But like, does anybody take the time to read the things below it? I don't know. I honestly, it's not like Twitter or Facebook where it's more of a uh, a written medium. Right, right. And I'm just happy to do it. I I really kind of do it for myself. And, you know, if there's a couple buffs out there that get in touch with me, it's great. It's a great way to, to, to make connections with people um, with that shared passion. On that same Instagram kind of idea, how often do you post is the first part. And then how do you decide what to post on? How do you make those decisions? Yeah, I mean, it's evolved. Uh, I, I've been running it for about five years. Um, I hit the ground running at the beginning. I would post five times a day. Um, I really had no idea what I was doing. Um, I'd post one photo uh, that someone shared with me of some of some clubhouse. I'd move on to the next one. Um, and over time, I've learned, you know, I want to be a little bit more focused. I want to post, you know, eight to 10 different photos of the same clubhouse um, to kind of give you like the full experience as if like you can kind of take a tour uh, both yeah. inside and out. Um, because for me, I mean, what I really want to do is kind of demythologize, demystify some of these places that could be very exclusive. You know, a lot of these places I've never been to. Some of them I've been fortunate to, to, to walk through. Um, but I've always sort of wondered, you know, what, what's inside there? What's it, what's it like, you know? And I think it's a, I'm trying to provide some kind of service for people who haven't been to these places just to get a glimpse of what, what it's like inside. That makes sense. I don't know if this is philosophical or not, but, uh, in your view, how does, how does a great clubhouse tie into the overall golf club experience? You know, that's a tough one because, you know, there's so many different kinds of golf courses not not one is is alike and i think you could say that pretty much for clubhouses as well i think that there i think there needs to be a, you know some kind of connection between the clubhouse and the golf course um also the membership there's kind of three things there where you're trying to achieve some kind of harmony um you know a really big clubhouse can make sense at one course uh and it would be terrible at another course. Um, something really simple makes sense at places like Sweetens Cove and even Shinnecock is, I think, a, a fairly simple clubhouse. Um, but some places want to be more sensational. You know, there's clubhouses that come to mind are Newport, you know, Sleepy Hollow. Absolutely. Yes. Both. Um, yeah, Medina. So, you know, there's, there's such a range between simple and sensational, between small and large. Um, but really, you want a clubhouse that makes membership um, come and hang out and, and stay there after playing golf or, or go there just for dinner or for drinks um, to create lasting friendships, to create memories. Um, a place to congregate, I think, is, is first and foremost, you know, what makes a, a great clubhouse. And then from there, in terms of design, I'd also say, you know, you want something, you want a building that really fits uh, the terrain, that fits the feel, the 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 region, um, you know the what what the what kind of character and ambiance the club is looking for in terms of like its course in terms of its kind of members, 
um, that can all be reflected um, in the design of a clubhouse building. What are the earliest clubhouses? What were they? What were they like? Here, let's just stick to here in the United States. What were the earliest clubhouses like in America? The earliest ones were n- never intended for golf. Um, you know, golf became um, some had some sort of following. You know, here in the 1880s, 1890s, and at that point, uh, people who were interested in learning the game of golf and playing it. Um, as you know better than I do, um, we're purchasing farms or leasing farms um, and laying out really rough-looking uh, golf holes and um, in order to facilitate some kind of structure. Um, they, weren't, they certainly weren't building anything new. Instead, they, there'd be most likely some kind of old barn, some kind of farmhouse, that could be of use as a clubhouse. So the earliest ones, for sure, were very small, um, almost entirely made out of wood, uh, almost entirely meant to be something servicing a farm rather than a bunch of golfers. Um, so there was a lot of disharmony, if you will, between <laughs> the purposes and sizes of these clubhouses, these, these old farmhouses, and what they were being asked to do um, for golf clubs or for country clubs. It's really amazing when you think about it, too. A lot of those original clubhouses, Shinnecock being an exception, of course, many of them burnt to the ground because they were wooden structures. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you look through you know, old newspaper databases um, like I've done from time to time, and you're just trying to track down some interesting information about various clubhouses, I mean, nine out of 10 articles before 1920 are about a clubhouse burning down. Yeah, right. It, so true. You know, the, you know, the history of clubhouses in that era is is written in fire. Um, they really had to figure out uh, a more lasting and sustainable model for building clubhouses. Um, you know, it's very fortunate that a lot of those or some of those small farmhouses or manor houses still exist. You know, the famous ones like Augusta National, um, the clubhouse at the Country Club in Brookline, uh, Myopia Hunt, Peachtree. These are some of the, the famous ones that have have evolved, of course, with the help of other structures that have been attached to them, you know, to kind of build out and flesh out, you know, the needs of a, of a country club. Now, so those early clubhouses, what, what was the purpose? What, what did they, how did they serve their membership in those, in those early days? Do we know? Yeah, there's some early writing about this. Um, These converted farmhouses and cabins, they weren't really nothing more than four walls where you can kind of go in and change your clothes. Um, Some of them might have something like a shower or a bath. Um, Some would have uh, an area for food and beverage because there's likely to have been some kind of kitchen of some sort already in existence there. Um, And then there was always or often a a patio of some sort or a porch. Um, And I think that's where we get a love of, of porches and patios on our own clubhouses. Makes sense, right? Yeah. Throwback. Yeah. I mean, people in the 1890s, it's hot. You're wearing a three piece suit. You're playing, (laughs) you're playing out in the summer sun and um, you know, you want to catch a breeze. Um, So I think that uh, hanging out on the porch was one of the first um, aspects of, of clubhouse culture that, that we can, glimpse and kind of identify with now. 
Um, but there wasn't really much to them. Um, and it's not until the, the 1920s or so before they, you know, really started thinking from the ground up, you know, what, what do we need in a building that, that serves golf? Um, Shinnecock is the first one to really be built from scratch with the, uh, just the precise purpose of being for golfers and for a golf course. And that's why, you know, a lot of people looked at, to Shinnecock Hills, um, designed by Stanford White as, as being arguably the most influential, um, clubhouse, um, certainly in the first 30 years of American golf. So in your studies, do you, do you ever look back at clubhouses that once were versus what stands today? You know, for instance, you know, one that was lost in fire and then what replaced it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I mean, it's stunning to me. And, and I, I had definitely have not done as much study as you have on this, but it's amazing to me how often a iconic looking building is replaced with a building that is just doesn't seem to fit. Maybe it was built because it was maybe it burnt down in the forties and it was during the great depression and money came into play. I don't know, but there are some really just, Oh, just sad examples of, you know, iconic, beautiful clubhouses, Victorian, if you will, that have burnt to the ground and been replaced with, or even replaced out of, wanting something new in the 1970s with, you know, the concrete jungle of a clubhouse. Yeah. I mean, I mean, anyone who's familiar with, with modern architecture probably has a a strong opinion about those buildings that are, you know, nothing more than, you know, windows and, and some concrete, um, you know, that were, were popular in the, in the fifties and sixties. You know, it's the same thing with uh, golf course architecture. You know, a lot of these great courses, you know, some some members had this great idea of bringing in, you know, an architect in the 1950s or, or 60s to, you know, to modernize, quote unquote, their their golf course, which was, um, I mean, now we can sort of feel like it was, you know, a mistake, took out a lot of that really interesting classic contouring that we've grown to love or many of us have. And it's the same way with, with clubhouses. Um, sometimes you know, a course is very lucky to have not touched their clubhouse very much whatsoever. Um, some had some pretty ugly clubhouses where, you know, the membership made a great, great decision and, and, and built something new and, and, and lasting. So it can go both ways, but, you know, in terms of, in terms of luck, you know, it really just depends on when your membership, uh, decides to make that move and, and, and who's, who's in charge of it. Yeah, I think of my own club, uh, not to single it out, but uh, our club used to be part of the Bellevue Inn, which was a large, well, I think it was the largest wooden structure in the United States at one point from a hotel standpoint. Donald Ross did a renovation to our 36 holes in 1914. And over the years, we peeled away from the the hotel, which served as our clubhouse and sure. built a more, I'd call it modern golf course for a club, you know, a, a location that was settled for golf in 1897. So this modern building sits on two courses between, you know, 1897 and 1914. So, you know, if I had my druthers, you know, I'd try to buy the hotel now and move it to our current location and bulldoze what we have. I'm not, they're never (laughs) going to let me do that though. Sure. Yeah. And there's, I mean, some courses where you, you know, a Victorian style clubhouse, you know, something like Oakmont, you know, that it, it's really fitting, 
You know, it just oh, really yeah. makes sense. Oakmont's really, amazing. Yes. Yeah. And then there's, you know, if you take that clubhouse and, and you put it at Sweeten's Cove, I mean, it would just be completely ridiculous. You know, you, you really have to think about the, the fit, you know, and it's, it's not one size fit all. So talking about American clubhouses, how are they different than those you find in the United Kingdom and Ireland? Well, um, they're much larger. Um, they're much more luxurious. Um, they're much, they're built to be a place of comfort. Um, and I think that they're also intended to show off a little bit. Um, I think when American clubhouses were starting to get designed and, and, and sort of evolved as a concept of, of architecture, um, this was when American prosperity was was kind of on on the upswing. You know, the the 1890s, the 1900s, 1910s, 1920s. This is where Americans were starting to have more money, and especially the very very rich Americans who took up the sport of golf. So you do have some situations, um, especially with the clubhouses and courses in the Northeast, um, where there are some simply built clubhouses, but then there are ones that are built to be more opulent and, and showing off. Um, I think, you know, just to kind of compare two that we've already talked about, um, you know, I think Shinnecock is very simple and kind of understated, um, whereas Newport is made to kind of look um, like a very Beaux-Arts, um, kind of like jewel box, if you will. Um, they both sit at the very highest point the property um so they're they're seen from all over the course and that's like a beautiful attribute for both of them but they're two very different clubhouses trying to do different things in the uk those clubhouses um were much smaller much more basic they're much more simple clubhouses in the uk um there wasn't really much thought put into um, how many lockers there would be or how many showers there would be or or how many different kinds of um, eating and comfort spaces there would be. Um, that becomes to be more of an American idea, an American concept. And this architect, Clifford Wendehack, is kind of responsible for um, some of this thinking. Not, not, not to say that all clubhouses should be large and luxurious. He, he didn't believe that. He just said by the time he was working in the mid-1925s, it was just a matter of fact, a matter of the business. Um, but he said um, that Americans have contributed two major design thoughts in architecture, and that's the skyscraper and the American golf clubhouse. Wow. That's that's saying a lot, isn't it? Or maybe it's saying a little. I don't know <laughs> which which one is it. It's a big statement, um, but it, you know where he's positioned in the 1920s. I think he's I think he's dead on. Um, these are these are two very influential concepts um, that help explain. I think a lot of what um, our country was attempting to do in the 1920s and 30s. And it shows a lot of our national identity and the way that we think of ourselves and think of business and think of golf. Um, the idea of the American clubhouse didn't really catch on many other places. It didn't really, you know, spread throughout Europe um, or Asia. 
or the Middle East the way that, you know, you might say the skyscraper has. Um, and maybe that's a good thing. Um, you know, you need a clubhouse, again, that fits your particular approach to golf. And if our approach to golf in the U.S. is different, and I think many people think it is, then it, then it might it might be better to have a different kind of clubhouse here. What do you think brought on that transformation in the 1920s? Uh, why do you think they've our founding golfing forefathers and mothers thought it was necessary to transform from kind of the, the farmhouse to the clubhouse? Well, it takes a lot of long-term thinking. And, and I think by the time the 1920s, um, an architect like Clifford Wendehack was trying to think of the problem and the advantages of building a new clubhouse in, in new ways. Um, he was really the first to talk to a lot of different architects who have built clubhouses. Back in the day, if you were an architect, you, were, you probably built only one, maybe two clubhouses. It wasn't really a cottage industry. Um, you were largely still getting commissions to build homes for, for wealthy people, maybe public buildings. Um, and occasionally, a golf course might approach you if you were, you know, honestly well-connected with some of the rich members or, or something. So there wasn't a lot of industry thinking. There wasn't a lot of best practices. There wasn't a magazine that you could really go to for this. So Clifford Wendeheck started writing for a magazine I'm sure you're familiar with. I believe it's Golf Illustrated. Great magazine back in the day. Yeah, yeah. So in the 1920s, he started putting together some of his thoughts. But he was in touch with a lot of different architects, um, mostly up and down the East Coast, um, and talking to them about, you know, their solutions for different aspects of clubhouse design. And he was trying to do this, of course, to inform his own work on clubhouses. But then I think he realized that he has a lot of information. He has a lot of resources that would be really helpful to other courses across the country who are less connected, um, who are still likely, you know, having somewhat amateur architects help to design their buildings and to kind of lay out some really helpful principles. Um, he's not trying to prescribe any one particular way of building a clubhouse or what, or what it should look like, what the, what the style should be, what the size should be. But his book, which came out in, in 1929, um, is really trying to lay out some, some proposals, some, some really good things to think through based on you know, the 30 years or so that had already passed in the US where people were starting to build their own clubhouses from scratch and, and learning a lot of lessons you know, from, from doing things wrong. Um, and he wanted people to, to avoid making those same um, you know, problems, uh, those same mistakes over and over again. Do you have those principles with you by chance? Or could yeah, you go I mean, through them or touch on them? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, he doesn't lay them out as commandments or, or anything like that. So you kind of have to, yeah, you, you know, have to pick through the book, book to find them. But, you know, the book is, is pretty short and, and, and it's an interesting read for, for people who are um, building architecture buffs. Um, some of his principles include um, hiring a clubhouse architect early. You know, his audience here is really like people who are who, who are members of clubs or, or, or on committees at country clubs um, thinking 
thinking about what they would do if they were to, to start from scratch with a clubhouse. He says hire an architect early and have there be a connection, um, a meaningful relationship and cooperation between the golf course architect and the clubhouse architect. Brilliant. Because if those two people are working together, you can really create an harm, a harmony again between the golf course and the clubhouse. And a lot of this is is simply, you know, routing. You know, we talk about the routing of golf courses. Uh, one to heck uh, would be talking about the routing of a clubhouse. Um, how do you get traffic and people through in the most efficient ways? Um, where do you stop bottlenecks? So, you know, he came up with um, – some of these principles, um, like proper placement of interior rooms. You know, he wants the locker room close to the golf shop. He wants both of these things to be near, you know, the first and 10th tees, the ninth and 18 greens. Um, so that golf is kind of something where that, you know, the golfers are circulating around there. Um, he believes that, you know, the kitchen making all the food should sit, you know, near the gr- the grill room, the dining room. So, uh, food isn't traveling across the entire clubhouse um, to get to to tables. Um, these are pretty basic concepts to our mind, I think. But I think in 1925, not everyone has really figured this out. Um, he he was a firm believer in in returning nines. Um, interestingly, he says um, this is so that members aren't too far away from potentially important phone calls. Sure. Yeah. That's pre-cell phone. You bet. Absolutely. We don't think of that now, but absolutely. And it breaks that St. Andrews model, right? Of the all the way out and all the way back in. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, He also believes in the importance of finding the best site for a clubhouse. And then again, um, you know, routing the course around it. Um, Not thinking of where to put the clubhouse as like the last thought or an afterthought, um, but really thinking about, um, you know, logistical um, problems, like how far is this road that's coming in off of the other roads? Um, is it going to be, is the clubhouse going to be accessible in inclement weather, in winter, in snow? When again, if you're thinking about uh, what kind of vehicle people might be driving in the 1920s, um, you want your membership to be able to get to the clubhouse in the winter in the northern states so that they could have dinner there, so they can go to galas and, and balls, and so that they can spend money. Um, so he's thinking a lot about the revenue of a club um, and having the clubhouse um, help um, bring in that that revenue and, and also that camaraderie. You may not know the answer, but a lot of golf course architects wrote books, right, uh, about architecture. And in many ways, it it also served as kind of a, I, I guess you'd say, marketing for their services. Do yes. you think Wendahack had that in mind when he's writing this book to basically advertise his services as a golf clubhouse architect for hire? It's possible. You know, I haven't looked too much into... Um, how his business was affected or influenced by the sale of the book. Um, he does humbly mention in the introduction that he personally didn't see there being much of a market for this book, um, but that his friends and his publisher convinced him otherwise that it would be of great value to put down his ideas and principles into a book. Um, so the book did come out in 1929. 
Um, he did design the Wingfoot Clubhouse, uh, and oh, that opened in 1924, 1925. Um, so the book does come out after he's um, finished a number of clubhouses in the New York State area. Um, and, you know, he famously built one in Caracas as well, um, which I think still exists, but is no longer a golf course. I think the building still exists. Um, but when the heck, like, never really, you know, he, I mean, he went on to design, I think, a total of at least a dozen clubhouses, which doesn't sound like a lot, but that was way more than really any other of the leaders, you know, and and of the clubhouses that we think of historically today as you know, some, some of the most influential, I think 12 is really a lot. Yeah, absolutely. So did he advocate, he wrote this book, um, and, and I'm sure many of these clubhouses were built prior to the book, but did he advocate for every clubhouse to be built generally the same or was he flexible there in your take? When you read it, it's, it's really, it's really, uh, it's really nice to see how he's, he's deferring to options and he's showing you where, you know, you have the most um, the most space to to make it yours. Um, it really sort of depends. He has some some broader kind of general principles and things to think through. Um, later parts of the book, when he gets down to you know very nitty gritty details, um, he has some strong ideas about small things. You know, he says, you know, the placement of soap dishes in showers should be you know, no no fewer than two feet from from <laughs> you know from the shower nozzle um, or else you know all your soap will be washed away and you know all those all those kinds of things that you know yeah we, down to the minutia <laughs> yeah well and you know he talks a lot about really important subjects of the time like water supply like electricity um, especially um, fire prevention sprinkler systems these are things and with the history of clubhouses you want to make sure that you know, this, what you're building isn't going to, you know, suffer the same fate as your previous clubhouse. So there's, there's a lot of minutia in there, um, which, you know, when I get to, I, I just start kind of glazing over just a little bit. Uh, but it is, it is fascinating. I mean, it's a mix, you know, he, he himself did not design any two clubhouses the same way. You know, he, he was comfortable in, you know, two certain kinds of architectural styles or, or languages. And so there are some similarities in his, um, you know, in his designs. But but other than that, they're they're really pretty unique and 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 stand apart. Well, you know, when you think about it, if you're a prolific designer of clubhouses and you have twelve, you could see the value of that book. Really, I mean, if if you pick an architect who's never designed a clubhouse, um, I, I can't even imagine trying to you know reinvent the wheel. At least you have a book. You've got some kind of semblance of you know, how to start the project. Yeah. And, uh, you know, a lot of architects might not be golfers either. You know, it could be a Seth Rayner kind of situation where, you know, Seth Rayner isn't being, uh, you know, isn't partnering with a CB McDonald who knows everything about golf or tells everyone he does, you know, instead, you know, you just have an architect who's being asked to to build a building um, and and a golf club committee thinking that that's all the architect needs to know. Um, but really there are some very specific things about the game of golf, especially as it was evolving, you know, the needs of different clubs, especially clubs that were considering, you know, expanding membership as they became more, you know, financially, you know, stable 
Um, you know, how, how do you build, for example, how do you build something, a structure like a clubhouse that can feel both large and accommodating and small and intimate? You know, you don't want all of your events to be in a massive ballroom, right? If you're playing cards, you want like a small kind of comfortable homey space, um, you know, where you don't feel like, you know, your conversation is echoing off the wall. So, you know, there are a lot of problems that an architect can can solve, but they, they, they might not be thinking of all those things if they don't know the ins and outs of what it means to, to play golf and, and, and to spend time at a golf course. Yeah. Let me ask you this, getting into Wingfoot and uh, our venue for this year's U.S. Open that happens this week. How did Wendahack go about employing these design principles he came uh, up with at Wingfoot? It's really interesting to read his book and then to look at the layout of of this clubhouse because I think that there really is um, a lot of overlap. I mean, I I think if you you ever go to Wingfoot or you see photos – um, on my account this week or or elsewhere, um, you'll see a lot of these principles in action. Um, you know, he was a big advocate of spending time and design money on locker rooms. Uh, apparently, before the 1920s or so, locker rooms were really um, not focal points of design. You just think you you put a couple of lockers ar- along the wall uh, and you're fine. But he goes into all these details about his book about all kinds of problems, like where do you put drinks so that they aren't spilled when someone walks by? Um, how do you find places for people to sit um, in a locker room in an area where it's meant you know, for people to get by um, one another? Uh, where do you put place showers in relation to lockers? All these things. Um, I think when the heck put a lot of time and energy into thinking through his philosophies at Wingfoot. And I think he used Wingfoot. This is just my amateur opinion. I think he kind of used it as, as his signature design. I think he wanted to get more business as any architect would. Um, and he knew that if he kind of made um, something really great at Wingfoot, he could show people potential clients could go there, could see it for themselves, and then they can say, this is, this is the man to, to build our clubhouse. Great design is often thought to reflect the use and the people who inhabit the space. What does Wingfoot's clubhouse say about the club and its membership to you? It says a lot. Um, there's a certain kind of language or certain kind of story that's being told through architecture really in any, in any clubhouse. Um, I used to not know a single word of this language um, <laughs> about three or four years ago, and still I only know a couple words and a couple terms, but it's more about a feel. It's more about noticing things. And the thing you notice when you um, are inside um, the Wingfoot Clubhouse uh, is that attention to detail. It's simple. It's not um, too over the top. Um, it's built in the English scholastic style, which, um, can look a little imposing from the outside. Um, there's a lot of shingles on top of the roof. Um, there's a lot of stone walls. Um, the walls, um, the rock was harvested from, 
um, the actual property of Wingfoot. Yeah, that I mean that's really cool, isn't it? Uh, they it really essentially is. they what they carved out seventy two hundred tons total, and built essentially the clubhouse from that material. Absolutely, and so there's a real connection there, literally between the materials of this building and the land that surrounds it. I mean, another interesting thing I, I just learned uh, was that um, a lot of the rock that was used to anchor the skyscrapers of the Manhattan skyline were harvested uh, in this area, um, just north of New York City, where Wingfoot was. Uh, anyone familiar with, with these courses like Westchester, um, in the Westchester County area, know how rocky the terrain is. And so a lot of that rock was being dynamited and um, shipped down by train to Manhattan and would serve you know, as the anchors of these skyscrapers. So you get this really nice poetic connection there between what Wanda Heck is saying about the American contributions to architecture being skyscrapers and clubhouses. That is pretty cool. That is really cool factoid that it kind of comes full circle, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, right at the heart, right at the center of the clubhouse, um, to get back to the to your question here, is the grill room. Um, and it's a really interesting decision because um, this, it forms as the physical heart and I think the emotional heart of the clubhouse and the club. The grill room at Wingfoot is a really great place to hang. It's a really unpretentious room. There's just wooden square tables with wooden chairs. There's uh, paper placemats that have like the layout of the golf course on it. Um, those same kind of paper placemats you might remember like restaurants having like in the 80s and 90s. Um, you know, when the heck said of, of grill rooms, uh, you know, really certainly applies here. Uh, I have a quick quote from his book. Uh, he says, a golfer's greatest interest in his club is his ability to obtain a well-prepared meal whenever he desires and a comfortable home-like and unpretentious atmosphere in the grill will add greatly to his enjoyment of one. Um, this place, um, Ben Crenshaw said, uh, the grill room at Wingfoot is the best place to have a burger and beer in golf. And it really is uh, a place where you could just be yourself. You don't have to worry about uh, your posture. Um, there's no linen white tables. Um, and so that's really, I think, I think that speaks volumes about uh, the club and the membership um, of course, you know, the, on the other side of the clubhouse, there are fancy rooms. There's a, there's a ballroom there. There's a place where you could have more formal events, but it's not the first thing that you walk into. You know, the other thing that I think helps to define the club is that opening hallway. Um, there's a hallway there that kind of connects all these, all these pieces, um, the grill room, the locker room, and the more formal areas. And that's lined with cases that showcase a yeah. lot of memorabilia. And so the club is really proud of their history. Of course, they should. They've held six U.S. Opens now after this week and a number of other uh, really important tournaments. Um, it's a very difficult course. Um, and, you know, their tournaments have always yielded um, really big name um, champions. So you have memorabilia there by from Bobby Jones, you know, his historic win in 1929. Um, so it's, it's, it's cool to see those things. Um, but like, 
I also don't find it as being, I've seen some of those presentations in other clubhouses of courses I won't name now, where those those trophy cases feel a little bit more pretentious, a little bit more like they're they're really trying to show off. Um, and it might be more for the guests than it ever is for, for the membership. But here it's a little more understated. And I think, you know, it, it's like the membership knows of their own history, but it's nice to just have, you know, a, like small reminders, if you will. Yeah. You know, I, I think you brought up a point earlier before we jump, jump into another question on, on the clubhouse that I find really fascinating about some of these clubs, these iconic clubhouses and, and, and golf courses, is that you would think in many of these halls and many of these dining rooms and many of these locker rooms that, you know, you have to walk on pins and needles when, in fact, despite this iconic building, iconic courses, it's very relaxed atmosphere to actually hang out in. Absolutely. Um, I, I've been fortunate to, to be at um, a good number of private courses over the last couple of years. And I, I, I can I can tell you, I've, I've felt very much out of my element at a good number of them. Um, and then there are others that make you feel just completely at home. Yeah, uh, so true. And it's, you know, it's a hard thing. It's a hard thing to it's a hard thing to, to, to construct because it takes a mentality. It takes a culture um, that really has to spread across membership, you know, and it has to be in, in the way the, the employees approach people. Um, you know, the, the, you know, the ethos of, of the GM or the director of golf or, or whoever these, you know, positions are, um, there's no right way or wrong way to do it. You know, some, some places want a very formal atmosphere and that's fine. Um, other players, other places want there to be a, a bar where, you know, you don't have to worry if, you know, you have, you know, a couple, you know, too many pops, you know, and, and, and no one's going to judge you for it. So, um, I think Wingfoot is a place where, you know, you, you have that balance, you know, you, you, you have those areas that I think are a little bit more serious and a little more formal. And then you have those areas where, um, yeah, you could, it's largely unpretentious. You know, all the focus this week's going to be on Wingfoot and the West course, so it'll all be focused really on the external. Can you give our listeners an idea of what it's like inside Wenda Hack's masterpiece? Let's focus on the internal. So obviously, uh, Wingfoot is known as having one of the greatest locker rooms in all of golf. Uh, I know you touched on the grill and you touched about on the hallway. Maybe you could dive into some of the other elements of his design. Sure. Um, I think what's interesting is that, you know, he's – He's trying to make something that's very functional um, rather than something that's entirely beautiful. Um, I think he's more of, you know, the kind of architect who's who's thinking that um, form follows function. Um, what what Sullivan once said um, about buildings and about his his theories of, of, of architecture. So I think, you know, you can tell that it's an old. Um, you know that it's an old clubhouse. the The emphasis wasn't too meant too much on uh, views. For example, there aren't you know floor to ceiling windows that would have been really hard to put in in the 1920s. Um, and maybe you know they're they're a bit lucky to have a a stone constructed 
building so that they can't really easily knock out windows to make them larger. Um, it or does burn it down to be fair. <laughs> or burn it down. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, you know, I think that there's, um, something to be said about how comfortable and warm it feels inside. And I think, you know, it's a clubhouse that works equally well in winter as it does in the summer. Um, you know, there, there's a lot of room uh, inside to feel very warm and cozy. Um, there's areas, you know, from the grill room, you can kind of extend out to this patio, which would overlook um, the 18th hole, uh, the 18th green, the 9th green. Um, the new 10th tee is, I mean, feet away from this patio and feet away from, from the men's locker room now. So there's a sense that you're, you can be really close to golf, that you can watch it, that you can be a part of it. You can see your friends three putt, you know, the crazy 18th green. Um, so I think that there's places in this clubhouse for everyone and, and no matter what you're interested in, uh, that day, um, it's not that large, you know, it's not, it's not massive. It's it definitely it's, looks bigger than it is. Would you agree yeah. there? Right. It's, it's about 300 feet long. It's 56 feet high. Um, and, you know, Wendahak made some kind of design tricks. You know, it looks higher because of a little trick that he did with the slate roof. So the, the roof is made of this slate from Vermont. The tiles, if you look at a close-up of the building, the, the, the tiles on the very sort of bottom, the beginning of the roof, are much larger. They're, they're much wider. They're taller. And then as those tiles go up further up the roof, they get smaller and smaller. Interesting. I did not notice that. That's amazing. Uh, You know, it's a little trick and it's not something that, you know, anyone would really notice as they're driving up, but, um, it gives the impression of a steeper roof line, um, which really makes the building feel kind of extended upward, upward as if it has, you know, four stories to it. When in, when in reality, there's only two stories there. So in, that, in other words, Wendahack uses uh, the tile or the slate on the roof, much like a golf course architect would use bunkers to camouflage. Yeah. Assessment. Yeah. I mean, it's like deception, you know, it's- <laughs> I, I really never would have thought of that in a million years. That's unbelievable. Yeah. And, and I think that, you know, as I said before, he, he really saw himself as being a coworker with Tillinghass, the, the, the golf course designer, um, they worked together quite quite a bit on sight lines um, for where the ninth and eighteenth would would end. And same thing with the other course, uh, with the east course. Um, this clubhouse sits right in the middle of both of both courses. Um, so you know you do typically look out a little bit more on the west, but if you're playing around on the east, you're you know you're right there, um, and that's where the the kind of circle drive is. There's a a big lion sculpture out front the circle drive uh, called Leo the lion. Um, there's a lot of uniqueness to, to the clubhouse, which is something that I really appreciate. All right. I'm going to, I'm going to dive off topic here a little bit and I'm going to get you into, I'd call it the, uh, the bonus round, if you will. Sure. Um, when people talk about the greatest golf course architects in America, they speak of the likes of McKinsey, McDonald, Rainer, Ross, Tillinghast. Who are the pillars of golf clubhouse architecture in America? Such a tough question. You know, it's, it's not, um, I was trying to think, you know, if, you know, what the analogy is between Clifford Wendahack 
you know, who's this father of modern, you know, golf club, clubhouse architecture. Um, and, you know, w- w- what architect would he have been? You know, would he be Donald Ross or, or, or someone else? And you know, honestly, I, I don't know. It's, it's really hard to kind of ascribe those analogies, you know, because they think that do an analogy, maybe just talk about who, are, who are the best. Like if we were looking yeah. at the icons of that era of golf yeah. club architecture, who are they? Maybe they're, they're current ones. Maybe they're ones of the golden age, but who would you ascribe as being the top of the game? If you're going to model a building after uh, one of their works, who would you pick? Who would be the short list of golf course architects? Yeah. The short list of that era. Um, and the, again, this is kind of like uh, pre great depression. Stanford white would be the first he, he designed Shinnecock, um, St. Andrews, um, the, um, uh, the course in uh, North Carolina or South Carolina. I'm forgetting now the really old one down there. Um, uh, Palmetto Palmetto. Yep. Exactly. Um, Roger Bullard. Um, he designed Maidstone and Milwaukee country club. Um, those are, two clubhouses that um, have influenced a lot of other designs, you know, um, Calusa Pines being largely modeled after Milwaukee CC in terms of its clubhouse. Um, a guy named Whitney Warren uh, famously designed Newport, um, the clubhouse there. He's the one who also, he's the guy who also designed Grand Central Station in New York. And uh, Jarvis Hunt, Jarvis Hunt wasn't well known um, in the golf world or it really in the architecture world either, but he was an architect. And he was a member at both Chicago Golf Club and the National Golf Links of America and uh, a very influential architect, C.B. McDonald, um, was friends with him and asked him to design both clubhouses at Chicago Golf and at National. So the ones that are still standing there, the ones after a couple fires from their earliest clubhouses were extinguished, Jarvis Hunt was was brought in um, to, to build two very different looking clubhouses. If you think of Chicago golf and national golf links of America, I, I can't believe they're designed by the same person. <laughs> they look like they're completely different, uh, as different as they can be. You know, he also designed one of my favorite clubhouses. Uh, it's kind of goes into a question I'm going to ask you here in a minute, but, uh, Lake Zurich. Did you ever see those photos I put up of Lake Zurich saw, golf club? I really need to get there. I'm, you know, I live like, 15 miles away from that place. Yeah. Salivating <laughs> at, at your photos. 1895. Uh, it was a James Fowlis course. It's only nine holes. It only has 27 members. Uh, probably one of the most exclusive clubs in the United States. And yet totally nonchalant. There's, there is zero Pompton circumstance when you are there. And the clubhouse is I mean, I think you saw the pictures. It is amazing. Uh, first of all, Jarvis Hunt, original, of course. But then the only thing that's changed is there's an awning on the front of the building. That's the only thing that's been added over the deck. And you go inside, and it is literally a cornucopia of their history all over the walls. From, you know, their, uh, I believe they have a saint, a dedicated saint for the, the, the club, uh, that you know rules the halls. They sing songs at Christmas that they've been singing since 1895. It is unique in every way. You have to go check it out. Oh, great! 
Great. Yeah. You know, I'll just add a couple quick names too. you know, because you, this all sounds very, you know, Northeast. Um, so there were, there were three really prominent architects in Florida that, that built, um, highly influential clubhouses that are still around today for people to see, um, Marion Sims Wyeth with Seminole, um, Addison Misner with Gulfstream and, uh, Maurice Fascio with Indian Creek. I mean, those places, um, are are palaces to the game. They're they're meant they're they're in um, the much more extravagant, opulent side of of clubhouses. Um, but real testaments to um, you know what what's possible in translating a kind of architecture down to Florida. You know the kind of in the kind of styles, the vernaculars that wouldn't really work up in New York. And then when the heck, of course, you know, um, you know, he built about 12 clubhouses all around, um, you know, New York city, including Ridgewood mountain Ridge, uh, Beth page is actually a when the heck design. I mean, it's important also to note that, you know, I've, I've named like a dozen people and they're all, they're all white men. You know, it's, it's, it's unfortunate. Um, this has always been an industry where especially well-connected men, you know, many from, born of means, you know, have, have had these opportunities to make these clubhouses. And, and I just really hope that, you know, 2020 and beyond, you know, that we can really diversify, you know, the ideas and, and, and the people who are building these structures for us. Is that changing now? Or do you know of any clubhouses built by people of color? I, I can't name any offhand. I mean, that's, I, I think that's one of the, I think that's one of the real challenges. I think that the game of golf we have the same problem in architecture too. I mean, golf course architecture. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think there's any exception here um, to that. And, and and I think that it's something that, you know, we, you know, we think about diversifying the game and growing the game, um, that these are the kinds of opportunities that historically have just been unavailable to anyone who hasn't, who has been white and, and who isn't a man. Yeah. I can't, that's an excellent point. I can't think of any um, who are women either. And it, you know, it's a shame. Let me ask you this, going back to these clubhouses and this architects, in your opinion, what makes these clubhouses and these architects stand out from the rest? Like, you know, you just named, uh, I don't know, maybe eight architects and Mm -hmm. maybe, you know, 15 of their works. What stand out? What makes these facilities or these architects great? What, what, What put them on the shoulders of the rest? I think because a lot of these buildings... Um, they inspire, you know, they, they, they lead people to imagine. Um, it takes them to a different place. And I think that golf, uh, for many of us is a kind of escape to somewhere else. Um, you know, it's, it's to get away from certain things. It's, it's really just to have a, a unique experience as well. Um, but these are people who took risks as well. Um, you know, Whitney Warren's design at Newport, it, 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 it's not, uh, it's not basic. No, it is not. It is, it is intricate and, and it, quite frankly, beautiful. When I stepped into the ballroom there, I had no idea that it was a two story ballroom from, you know, every picture I ever <laughs> saw of yeah. that building. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, Jarvis Hunt's, you know, Chicago golf, you know, having that spire there where there's a, a small room at the top where Seth Rayner 
um, lived for months while he was doing the redesign in, in 1926. Um, a lot of these buildings um, have a particular air or patina to them because they're old, because they're unique. And that's something you can't, you can't manufacture. Um, whether it's a, a simple design, whether it's a sensational design, um, I think these places, these clubhouses achieve a kind of harmony with the land around it, with the course, with, with the membership. It's about finding the ways to connect all of these things in, in just the right way. And that, again, that's, that's, that's very different in different places with different memberships. That's so true. Um, let me ask you a question before we get back to Wingfoot and, and close this up. Uh, so many of the great clubhouses are also part of historic and famous golf clubs, uh, club, uh, clubs that have held major championship uh, events. What clubhouses to you stand out that are outside of the known golf course? For instance, are there, do you know of any amazing clubhouses that sit on really good courses, but maybe aren't in the limelight because they've never hosted a major? Sure. Sure. I mean, I, well, one that has hosted a major, but, but people don't know this really, unless you're a real historian like yourself, um, on Wednesday at club in yeah, the Chicago, Chicago, yes. Um, has a, has a really great clubhouse. It wasn't there for the U S open when they hosted in the 1890s, but built in 1925 or so Hattie Lindbergh who studied with Stanford white built them a really, a really glorious clubhouse. Um, I'd also say Gulfstream is, is probably um, maybe the most, um, you know, like interesting design of a clubhouse, the most magnificent design of a golf course, a golf, sorry, a clubhouse uh, at a golf course that most people haven't heard of or haven't played. I haven't seen the clubhouse either. I think you need to post some photos on Instagram oh, so I can see them. Absolutely. Yeah, I will. I'll point those out to you. And um, in Indian Creek, again, um, in, in Miami Beach, um, is, is, it's a William difficult Flynn course, course correct? Exactly. It's a difficult course to get on. Um, it's actually, it, it owns its own Island. Um, you know, there's a gate there that you can't get on the Island unless you get past the guard kind of thing. Um, you know, on the far less exclusive side, the, the, the less formal side, you know, smaller clubhouses really do uh, a great job at places like Dunes Club and at Black Sheep. Um, these are places where there's absolutely no pretense whatsoever. And there's maybe even more of that British style of, of simplicity where, you know, it's, it's, it's just tables. Um, it's drinks. There's a couple lockers and it's, it's what you make it, you yeah. know, I love black sheeps. I, I, everything about it. There's obviously zero pretense in there. Um, but it's just, it's fabulous. It's just, a, it's like a hangout much like in that British style that you mentioned. Yeah. And places with, you know, really, really great hangs, you know, I'd, I'd point out, I mean, Cal club is amazing. Um, Beverly again in Chicago, I'm, I'm kind of biased cause that's where I live. Um, so I've, I've had more experience there, you know, recent clubhouses, Hudson national, you know, you're up on this, um, huge cliff overlooking, you know, the Hudson river. You can see all the way down to Manhattan on a, on a, on a clear day. Um, so there's lots of different places where, you know, there's, you know, the, the clubhouse may be a little bit more famous, famous than the course now, but that's not say nothing to say anything bad about these golf courses. It's just that, um, they aren't, you know, the Shinnecocks and the Marions and, and the Oakmonts that everyone, um, throws around all the time. 
How about, uh, let me ask, I, I lied. I'm going to ask you another question here. Do you, do you have a favorite or a list of favorites clubhouses that just, I, I, I bring up this question, there's things rattling around in your brain right now. What are those, what are those places? I mean, I really don't, you know, I mean, my other line of work, I, you know, I'm a literature professor and the first question I get is, you know, who's your favorite writer? J.D. Salinger. That was easy. (laughs) Come on. You know, it is too. (laughs) I mean, I've got hundreds of possibilities and, and, you know, the thing that I'm more interested in and is, is, is the variety of it is the, is the full, um, you know, picture of all the, how all these things come together in, in their variety to kind of create a really interesting genre of, of architecture. So, I mean, I couldn't, I couldn't pick a personal favorite. I mean, I'll say Augusta national, if, if that means I get to go walk through it one day, <laughs> that's exactly how that works. Oddly enough. <laughs> <laughs> I hope so. I don't know. I'm throwing it out there. The, uh, let me, I, I, again, I'm going to lie. I lied again. Um, can you think of, it doesn't have to be in the States, can you think of one clubhouse that doesn't seem to fit its surroundings? Like if you had to do it again, you'd, you'd advise them to do something else. Is anything popping in your head? No, I mean, it's, it's really hard to say. I mean, I'm, I'm just trying to go through golf courses in my mind and... Um, I, yeah, on 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 the spot, it's really hard to kind of th- kind of think through like what would what would be a, a negative example of this, you know? <laughs> sure, sure. No, that's a fair answer. That is a fair answer. All right, we're going to wrap it up uh, as we watch Wingfoot this week and some of the world's best players compete for our national championship. What, if anything, would you like them to think about when it comes to the structure that connects these two iconic golf courses? I think, you know, it's a symbol. I think, a lot, I think as Clifford Wendehack um, said, you know, clubhouses are already a symbol of things, are already a metaphor of things, are already in 1925 um, when he started working and he wanted to kind of just um, work with that idea that, that people are already looking at clubhouses as symbols. And, you know, the Wingfoot one, um, it's, it's made of, 7,200 tons of rock. <laughs> um, so it's hard, it's rough, it's solid. Um, it's been there since 1925. It's 95 years old. It stood the test of time. Um, it's unique. It paved it really its own its own way. Um, other people have tried to imitate it or learn from it or master it, um, but very few have. And, um, you know, but all also like that it on the inside it's a lot more relaxed than it looks like uh from the outside you know there's this rough exterior and then the interior is is really pretty low-key um very friendly and i think that's i don't know if that's a good mentality for golfers to take but that that kind of reminder of being you know stoic and and tough on the outside but but still being uh, warm and, and welcoming on the inside, I think is a good metaphor. That's a great way to put it. Jim, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. It was fantastic. Oh, thanks. It's been a pleasure. Before we end, a little factoid for the listeners. The cornerstone of Wingfoot's clubhouse contains a copper box, 
with Wingfoot's original bylaws, original membership, a copy of that day's New York Times, and the original A.W. Tillinghast plans for both of the courses. The only records of the golf course design the club has in its possession. It seems that the DNA of Wingfoot's course will always be a part of Wingfoot's clubhouse. Yours in golf history, this is Connor T. Lewis. Connor T. Lewis.